Welcome to the Always On Podcast. I am your host, Duncan McPherson. And of course, on this podcast, our objective is to enable our audience, which are high caliber fee-for-service professionals, to always be working on their business and on themselves, personally and professionally. On today's episode, I had a great exchange with Ted Motherall. Ted is a partner at the law firm, Walter Haverfield. And in this episode, we talked about how to plan and prepare to either buy or sell a business. And many of the very positive, but potentially unintended uh, benefits that come out of this exercise, both in terms of maximizing enterprise value, but also in the meantime, taking impeccable care of your clients and your team. So if you like this podcast, please like and share and tell your colleagues. And if you have any ideas for topics that you'd like to hear on this podcast in the future, just let us know. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're here to speak about the culmination of benefits that come from working on your business. I'm very excited. This is going to impact growth, specifically organic growth. This is going to impact your ability to achieve professional contrast, which incidentally, uh, and we've seen this before on more than one occasion, when there is volatility and uncertainty in the marketplace, this is where top financial professionals win and really put distance between themselves and uh, the pack. And then ultimately, everything we're going to talk about here also is designed to drive your enterprise value. Because you might have heard me say, because I'm a broken record on this, when you work on your business, every investment of effort you make contributes to the value of your life's work. I'm joined by Ted Motherall, who's a partner and a chair at Walter Haverfield's Business Services Group, a law firm in Ohio. Ted, thank you very much for being here. How are you? Good, Duncan. Thanks so much for having me. I'm well. We're also going to try to squeeze in some talk about the NHL playoffs, I hope. That is, I I have my playoff beard going as we speak, so uh, I'm happy to talk about whatever topics, financial (laughs) advisory or NHL that you have for me today. Terrific. Just right up front, who's your team? Uh, so I'm a Pittsburgh Penguins fan. So unfortunately, we got knocked out by the Rangers this year, but I'm a spoiled fan and being a Pittsburgh Penguins fan. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm a huge fan of Sidney Crosby. That's an easy team to like, Mario Lemieux, and uh, just such a great history and a lot of great veterans. And I think some goaltending and maybe some defense might have helped. But yeah, okay, well, that's terrific. So we'll weave some more of that in before we're done. But There's two reasons we're uh, having this conversation today. First of all, Chris Jepson at First Trust, co-author of the Advisor Playbook and the Blue Square Method, he texted me immediately after hearing you present at a conference. And uh, Chris goes to a lot of conferences, and it's not every day he will text me and say, you have to have a conversation with Ted. And then you and I had a conversation And uh, you, among other things, specialize in acquisitions. And what makes you different from my perspective is you don't just assist with the execution and the technical ability. You provide 
incredible advice and you have a process to help somebody who's looking to buy or sell prepare and maximize that outcome. So how did that all come about? So that's a great question, Duncan. You know, I've been fortunate to work with a lot of great firms in my career. And one of my first clients was a huge financial advisory services firm that was growing like my practice was growing. And and what I learned very early in my career is the wealth management and financial advisory services industry is very underserved from an exit planning, succession planning, and just from a legal perspective, knowing the nuances of what you need to do in an acquisition. So really my group, and I'm the chair of our business services group at Walter Haverfield, we have formulated almost a a checklist for succession planning. And that's on the buy side and also the sell side. And we represent RIAs and independent broker dealers nationally in on the buy side, their growth model, where they're looking to grow, what their footprint is, how they're looking to grow. And on the sell side, really just succession planning for very successful financial advisors who really haven't been involved in a transaction before and want to maximize their growth before they exit the business. Okay, that's terrific. And and just right up front, everybody, if you're not already uh, connected with Ted on LinkedIn, I encourage you to look for him because he's active there. I'd have to say just an essential contact if for no other reason, just to consume what he's putting out in terms of information. So that's surprising though, that an industry that would be so fixated on continuity, secession, family investment legacy, estate planning for their clients would be underserved. That's counterintuitive that that industry would have such a profound unmet need. So I'm glad that you landed there. So I want to ask you, so this notion that every investment of effort that somebody contributes to their business goes beyond just organic growth. There's a dividend in terms of advocacy, capturing money in motion, but then the overarching benefit is they get to drive the value of their, probably their greatest asset, which is their business. Mm -hmm. You've seen that firsthand on on a regular basis. Yes. Yes, I have. I I mean, the the great thing about being in financial advisory services is is you're, you're providing growth for your own clients. Uh, it's very analogous to what I do in the legal world with financial advisors that I work with. You're, you're creating a plan to create retirement, create economic benefits, and maximize the value of your clients. And what we do is exactly analogous to that with our financial advisory clients. We lay out a plan from a succession planning or an exit planning basis because you and I have talked about this a lot. I mean, it's that organic growth it's, you know, enjoying what you do every day. It's, it's hard to do what you do best for your clients and then sit back. You need an expert like myself to create that exit plan, that succession plan, and how to navigate the market. So we've come up with really a comprehensive checklist to do that. And it could be six months or it could be six years. We work at the pace of what our client's timeline is. But you're absolutely right. As a good financial advisor maximizes growth for their clients, they're also maximizing growth for themselves. And it's our job to create a plan for them as to how to exit 
or how to grow their business on the buy side or the sell side. Okay. Well, that's a perfect pivot. And, you know, I'm sure the exercise, and I've seen it myself, forces them to go beyond just their technical ability and core competency and start thinking like a business owner, which I'm sure adds immense credibility in terms of their relevance and impact to a client who is also starting to think about their own liquidity events. And so you have, you have a financial professional who's got knowledge and technical skills, but now they're broadening out and adding this expertise that they benefit from, but also put some distance between themselves and competitors. So there's a multitude of benefits there. I wish I had a dollar for every time I've said every business is built to be sold. And I really like how you detach from the time horizon expectation. It's, it's not really when it's going to happen. It is inevitable, but whether it's six months or six, six years, let's talk a little bit about the checklist. Let's talk about the exercise, future pace and lay out that plan. And then let's talk about planning to incrementally get somebody to that outcome of, of confidence. Absolutely. So, so what we do, whether it's on the buy side or the sell side, and what I mean by the buy side and the sell side is sometimes we're engaged by financial advisors that say, for example, you know, I just reached a billion dollars in AUM and I really want to figure out how to grow to the next level. If I need a partner, how I create affiliate relationships, how I buy practices regionally or nationally, Ted, how can we go about doing that? So that's on the buy side. And on the sell side, we'll have either a conglomerate or one single financial advisor that says, I'd like to do this for the next three to five to seven years. I'd like to position myself to maximize a sale to somebody who I like and respect within the space. How do I go about doing that? And the first step of that, Duncan, is what we do as a firm and as a team in our business services group is we do what's called a, a, a corporate legal audit, which is we set up a data room we get the company record book. We get all of the template agreements that they use. We look at their intellectual property and their branding. And we basically lay out what I like to call a menu. It's a prioritized menu of things that need to be done, whether they need to be done right now or whether they need to be done somewhere down the road to maximize the value of the company. And let me give you an example. For example, if we have a buy side client that's looking to grow, you need to make sure you have a holding company. And if you're, if you're providing separate services, they really should be separate and distinct from the holding company. So you should be creating a, a corporate umbrella, so to speak, where you have a holding company and then wholly owned subsidiaries underneath that holding company that are providing different services, whether you have an RIA in-house, an independent broker dealer in-house, whether you're providing tax and accounting services, whether you're providing wealth management services, whether you have an acquisition arm that is making all of your acquisitions. These are all things that need to be considered to have a sophisticated corporate legal structure if you're going to grow down the road. From a sell side perspective, we create a menu that says, these are things that you need to do in order to maximize your fair market value when you go out to market, when you go to sell your business. And that could be tightening up some template agreements that could be registering some trademarks to make sure that you have a full brand of what your company is. That could be providing some key employees, some, some vested equity in the company. 
So we provide almost a prioritized menu of what needs to be done to make sure that your company is in a perfect place to either grow from a buy side or to maximize your value to sell from the sell side. Okay, well, that's very well thought out, of course. And I'm curious, your ideal client, I'm sure, includes being self-motivated. You don't want it more than they do. They take your advice. That corporate legal audit, is there a self-guided component in the beginning that sort of gives you an indication that, okay, the, the, this advisor is taking this seriously and will put in the work? And I'm sure a very accretive multiplier comes out of that where you get a little bit more motivated. Let's, let's, let's really go deep on that. Absolutely. And that's, that's a great question. I mean, there are time parameters around the corporate audit that we give. And, and sometimes we sit down and, and this does happen sometimes. We have a financial advisor that says, great, let me take a look at this. Let me think about it and I'll get back to you. And then, you know, weeks go by and months go by and you follow up and you just have somebody that it is, it is secondary. And then most of the time, just because I'm pretty energetic about what I do, I really like working with financial advisors. You get a financial advisor that says, great, this is exactly what I've been looking for. Let's talk about each one of these line items. Let's figure out what we want to implement now. Let's lay out a clear timeline. And then we have our action items and we can move forward accordingly. And most of the time, I get a response like, wow, this is a really comprehensive process. And this is really going to help grow my company and do exactly what I need, whether that's growing on the acquisition side or maximizing value on the sell side. So usually it's a, it's a very engaged financial advisor from day one. Yeah. And that would be huge. And I'm sure your process engages the team because I think what I've seen is that sometimes leadership kicks the can down the road because it all just seems so ominous and it's work. And emotionally, I don't think they've really gotten their heads around the fact that this could actually happen. I could mm-hmm. actually exit. And, and sort of the fear of the unknown sometimes even supersedes the, the desire for the liquidity event and the, and the check and the outcome. So you engage the team to spread out the work and make sure that they're all bought in. Like, how does that work? That's correct. And that's, that's a great, so I engage the team on both sides. So we have a, Mm. every financial advisor that comes to us, no matter how big or how small, and and we really service the entire market. We have clients who have $15 billion and up in AUM. And we have clients who are just starting out looking to structure the right way that have under a hundred million or under $50 million in AUM. So we really service the market in every aspect, lower middle market, middle market, and even above. So how I engage the team is really twofold, Duncan. I, I, we, every time you come to Walter Haverfield, you have a working group list. You are assigned a team within our business services group and also full firm. So you have a contact in our intellectual property department. You have, I quarterback most of the legal needs. You have a, you have a group in the business services group under me. You have a contact in each one of our full service departments. And we do that for all of our clients, but most particular our financial advisory clients And then I also engage the team on the other end. It's not going to just be the principals uh, in the financial advisory services firm. It's going to be their entire team. So they know who I am. So they know what I'm trying to accomplish. There might be some key employees who might get some vested equity at some point in relation to the team. And really the principals who are out doing a lot of the client service, 
they're so busy most times that I really need to work with their team, their entire hierarchy in order to fully implement what we put in that corporate audit. So it's important to engage both the financial advisory team themselves and then make sure they have an assigned team on our end as well. Okay, so that's indicative of your experience and your mileage and also that advice, that qualitative sort of uh, bedside manner that goes into this. If you don't mind me putting on the spot, Ted, how are you compensated in these transactions? So that's a, that's a really good question. So usually I am just hourly based like most other attorneys. So the engagement letter usually states one of two things. You're engaging me on an hourly basis. Here's my standard rate. But what we do that is a little bit more entrepreneurial is we take each project and we try to create a hard cap from a legal fee standpoint. So if we're doing an acquisition or if we're doing something that is material, I usually like to itemize it and break it out into a memorandum. And we provide a legal fees hard cap, which is basically a ceiling so our clients can budget what their ultimate legal spend is going to be. And then what that it's, once again, it's similar to, you would never have somebody come in and redo your kitchen in your house and they look around and they say, okay, we can get this done in 90 days. And they never tell you how much it's going to cost and they do it all and they do it all well, but then you get a bill at the end of the day and it might be 25 or 35% higher than what you were budgeting for or expecting. So we run our business here at Walter Haverfield very much like that. Like a financial advisor runs their business, like their clients run their respective businesses. We make sure that we're budgeting and everyone knows their legal spend upfront by doing that on a project-based standpoint. Yeah, that's terrific. So you take some of the mystery and the sticker shock at the end out. So it's templated. You're investing all of the different episodes and and uh, cases that you've had in the past into this next one. And uh, yeah, so that that gives obviously a lot of clarity. Are you, is part of your process goals-based, meaning uh, upfront, you really get clear on what the seller or buyer is really motivated by and what they're hoping to accomplish? Absolutely. That is, that is one of the non-legal questions that I always ask. And, and what's great about now with the pandemic kind of I know it's still out there, but people are starting to travel now. And Duncan, I know you're a goals-based person. I am too. I like to sit down before I have a meeting with everyone and have dinner or talk to the executive team or the founder. It's one of the first things I ask. I, I, I usually ask, why am I here? Why do you want me here? But what are your business goals? Not your legal goals. Where do you want to be in a year? Where do you want to be in three years and in five years? Any good business owner needs to have those plans in place. And if they, can't, if they can't specifically answer that question, sometimes it raises a red flag. Sometimes it just needs mm. some coaxing. But people are surprised when I ask that because unfortunately, there are a lot of great lawyers out there. We're more than just scribes. We're trusted advisors. And that's what I try to lay out to my financial advisory clients. I'm here as a member of your professional team to make sure your goals are achieved in the timeline that you want to achieve them. I'm wondering if what I've seen lines up with what you've seen, because when I ask uh, for the goals of somebody who's starting to think about in the next 12, 36, 60 months, maybe an exit's in order, I see they want, they want liberation and order in their life. Mm -hmm. They want their legacy to be secure, meaning their clients are going to be in really good hands. And 
they want a really meaningful liquidity event, and, yeah. but it's in that order. Are you seeing kind of the same thing? Absolutely. And, and if we can kind of talk about what the market's done the last you know, three to five years, especially at the end of last year, you're seeing a lot of the selling go to the bigger conglomerates for those reasons. You have really, really good shops that are saying, hey, I've worked very hard for a very long time. I want to take some chips off the table, but I also want to go to a place that is going to partner with me, that is going to treat my clients with the same level of sophistication that I'm giving them now or more to make sure that they're comfortable in their succession planning as well. They're comfortable in all of the services and the technology that they're getting. And also, I know that I can kind of, I'm seeing a lot with the baby boomers and they say, I can ride out the next two to three years, knowing that my clients are going to be taken care of, knowing that I'm going to have a liquidity event and I'm going to get fair market value or a premium on that FMV with a bigger shop that's going to purchase my my business. So yes, I mean, those are three of the main aspects that I see on the sell side. And when you couple the volatility of the market right now, you're seeing more and more sellers that may want to sell a year from now they're calling me and saying, well, should I sell now? Because there, there's some uncertainty out there mm-hmm. with where the market is. And they don't want to lose the opportunity to see the liquidity event and also put their clients in the right place sooner rather than later. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic, right? Because they're not sure how long the window is going to stay open because some of these multiples are they never you know unseen in the last, well, up until recently. But also... Some advisors look at volatility with dread and apprehension and others look at it with anticipation because they say, look, this is why I became a financial advisor. And this is where I'm actually at my highest level of referability. Uh, My phone rings and I I get purpose in terms of just giving clarity to my clients and their friends. But I can really see the relief that comes from just providing some calm to these people. So I do want to talk about Because I've seen this where the exercise of staging a business and going through the checklist and being prepared in itself can be rejuvenating. Because I've seen advisors who said, I want to be out in 12 months. Then they go through the exercise and they change and they say, you know what? I I, want to sell and stay. I want to stay. I want to take some chips off the table. I want to just sort of settle down, but I still love what I do. To some actually delaying and saying, no, I don't want to do it in 12 months. I want to do it in three years or five years because of the rejuvenation. And literally, some have actually reimagined their whole calling. And some have actually said, no, I want to go out and buy a business. Or I want to attract an advisor to draft in behind me and uh, I'll just sort of make him or her my continuity plan and ease into the sunset really methodically. Have you seen that too? Absolutely. So almost every time we get engaged with a a sell side advisor that is looking for a succession plan or an exit plan, part of our corporate audit always is, well, have you ever thought about growth? Have you ever thought about all the different techniques to grow your company before you take it to market? And that is partnering with your affiliates, buying a minority equity piece of your affiliates, going out and acquiring some practices, whether they're locally, regionally, nationally, and then really instituting and taking a company to market. So it's, it's 
once again, it's twofold. You're cleaning up a company. So when you take it to market, a sophisticated buyer is like, wow, this company is incredibly clean. Their data room is pristine. Their corporate structure is great. We're, we're not going to have to close this deal in 90 days. We can close it in 45 and we're not going to have a lot of indemnification issues. So we're not going to need a big holdback or rep and warranty insurance. We're not going to have to reduce the purchase price. So you're maximizing your val- their value on that end. But then you're also saying, why don't we implement a short-term or a long-term growth program where you do this for a couple of years, you require some practices, you look very, very, very good on paper at the end of the day. And instead of selling your company for X in 12 months, you're going to sell your company for 5X in three to five years. And you get a lot of eyebrows raised and you get a lot of people saying, well, that number looks a lot better than the number that I was thinking about in 12 months. And that does give them some pep in their step, so to speak, saying, hey, I'm going to I'm going to stick around. I'm going to do this for a couple more years. I'm going to implement this growth initiative. We're going to make the company look perfect from a corporate legal and financial perspective. And then we'll take it to market for a lot more money. So that's kind of the instances that I'm seeing in the market that they give people pause if they want to get out quickly and give them a little bit of a a, more of a runway to sell their businesses. Well, that series of points there validates that you are collaborative and there's a real differentiator because I, I don't think there are many people that I've seen anyway in your space that that have that very enlightened perspective and, and force somebody to think all those things through. I am curious though, while I'm thinking about it, have you seen or have you determined what the ratios are in terms of the acquirers between private equity firms versus advisors that just want to grow through scale? What, what is that balance? Sure. So, so it depends on, it really truly depends on the size. And I, I, won't, I won't pontificate too much on this, but I do, a lot of, I do a lot of work in the private equity space. And what you're seeing in the market right now is private equity is taking a lot of minority positions in a lot of these bigger financial advisory firms. Anyone from a billion dollars in AUM up, probably a little bit more But if you approached a private equity firm 10 years ago and you said, hey, I'd like you to take a 20% equity interest in this financial advisory services firm, most private equity firms would be like, why on earth would I do that deal? And the reason is, one, most private equity firms want to acquire the entire company so they have control to run it and then flip it in three to five to seven years. And two, their return on their investment wouldn't be worth their time. For doing something like that. But the market has taken off so much in the last five years that a lot of the private equity investment that you're seeing are these financial advisory firms that take a step back, Duncan, and they say, hey, we've gotten to four or $5 billion in AUM, but we really need an expert to come in here and help us with our IT infrastructure, with our M&A program, with our, with our hiring, with our administrative procedures. And that's when they usually go to market. And there are some really, really excellent private equity firms that really know the space. And they're taking those positions. There's also some banks out there as well that are giving these companies the, the, the debt and the equity that they could go out and make acquisition runs. So the differentiator here is a lot of the bigger shops, the shops that have three, four, $5 billion dollars, the last two years since the pandemic started, have said, we need somebody, we need an expert who's going to partner with us, who's going to let us continue to grow our company and take us to the next level. And those are these private equity firms 
they come in, they take over your M&A, they, they source all of your deals so you can run the company, they do their your IT infrastructure, whatever partner you're looking for, there is a, there is a good fit out there. So in, to answer your question, a lot of the PE investment, especially the minority investment is upstream in the market. Mm. And a lot of the, the, I wouldn't say smaller, they're still big. A lot of the 1 billion AUM and under shops, that's where you're seeing the financial advisor to financial advisor acquisitions. Yeah, makes perfect sense. I'm just curious. I've never actually thought about this, but if I'm a buyer and you're you're representing a seller, does it add credibility to see you associated with the deal from a buyer's perspective? Does that make it more attractive? I think it does. I don't know if it makes it more attractive, but I think there are a lot of really good firms who represent these good buyers, and I represent people on the buy and the sell side. It's it's very funny how underserved the market is. Yeah. I think you could, I think you could encapsulate the really really good M and A attorneys and shops out there into about fifteen or twenty that really know the space. And I think when you see one of them on the other side, or you see in-house counsel for one of these private equity firms on the other side that know the space, you know that a deal is going to get done right, and a deal is going to get done seamlessly and quickly because that person knows the space, they know the pressure points, they know the negotiation points, they know the clawbacks that are associated with bringing client accounts over, they know the regulatory and compliance that, that go with purchasing either a minority or majority or an entire company. So it does lend credibility and it also gives people a sigh of relief that, uh-oh, I'm dealing with somebody who's never done a deal like this before. This is going to be a very long three months to oh, you know, I've worked with Ted in the past or other firms in the past. This is going to be easy because this person actually knows what they're doing. Yeah, that makes sense as well. And again, coming back to the goals-based approach, I think if I'm a seller, my goal is, if you think of time and money, right? Just minimize the time required. And a lot of that is invested right up front and minimize the hassle factor and maximize the outcome. So let's get into the weeds on some of this. Let's talk a little bit more about your checklist and, and what you force a seller to think through to, to get their house in order. Sure. So usually, like I said, we, we ask them to dump basically everything into a data room and we go through it. And usually the first thing we look at is corporate structure. When you're selling a company, whether it's equity or assets, you need to have a clear chain of title as to who's owned the company. You need to have your corporate record book in order because the last thing you want is you negotiate a letter of intent. A buyer takes a peek in the data room and it's a mess. And then they look at a corporate record book and it's either piecemealed or there's a ton of diligence issues it gives a buyer great pause at the end of the day. But when you do all of this up front, the corporate structuring, the company record book, all of your agreements, we look at all of that and we make sure that they're negotiated to limit liability. We make sure that they're negotiated by industry standard. We make sure all of their intellectual property is registered um, and protected because most of these really sophisticated financial advisors just like you do, Duncan, they do a great job at branding. They do a really good job at branding. And we need to make sure that they are fully protected, that when there's a value to that branding, 
that they all own it and it's easily transferable to a buyer at the end of the day. So those are kind of the, the bigger issues that we see in terms of buttoning up from a legal perspective. And then of course, we have an active data room that is fully organized based upon a due diligence request list that we use on the buy side. So when the company finally wants to go to market and they use an investment banker to go to market, that's all organized. It's creating efficiencies it's from a from an economic perspective and also from a time perspective. Yeah, that's that's terrific. So um, I'm assuming that transcends into the area of HR and just having the org chart, roles and responsibilities laid out, clarity around the transition of that staff during the acquisition. You've got that built out too. Absolutely. So we do, from a labor and employment perspective, from an HR perspective, from an employee benefits perspective, we look at all of that. And one of the things that we look at specifically with that is we get the list of all of the employees and I sit down with the the principals and I say, okay, who on this list can you, you absolutely need to have? They're a value add. You can't lose them. You can't live without them. And when they highlight those people, we talk about options. We say, how are you going to incentivize this person to stick around? Like right now, they could be an at-will employee, which means they can just give you their two weeks notice and leave and go to a competitor. So what we usually talk about is options like, let's give them some type of restricted equity in the company that's tied to their employment. Let's have them sign a restrictive covenant agreement because we're giving them value in the company. So if they leave, they're going to forfeit whatever is unvested from that equity and they're going to be bound by a restrictive covenant agreement. Um, and, 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 when you're, and these are people you can't lose, so you need to first incentivize them by giving them some skin in the game, some equity in the company. And you also need to incentivize them in some way where, where they will be bound by a restrictive covenant agreement so you can properly protect your company. So those are, that's just one example of, of the things that we do from an employee retention standpoint that's a part of that exit planning strategy that we put forth. Yeah, very well thought out. I want to come back uh, to something you mentioned a moment ago. So the progression of the financial professional, they started in the areas of knowledge, product knowledge, credentials, designations. Then they shifted to expertise where they expanded beyond just being an asset manager representing products, pricing, and performance. They started being more panoramic, more process-driven. Now the next frontier is intellectual property. Now you talk about branding. Have you seen branding be something that actually has intrinsic value that does drive the value of the business? Yes, I have. I mean, there are financial advisors who've grown their shops and they're excellent marketers. They have phrases that need to be trademarked. They have designs that need to be trademarked. They have branding that needs to be trademarked and or copyrighted because they're original. They're not derivative actions. And those are all things that a buyer is going to put some, some type of value on at the end of the day because that, that those good marketing plans, they drive clients and they get business from either good products that are marketed correctly or good services that are marketed correctly, or just the branding to a certain uh, subsection of Americans. I've seen it. I probably see branding as a material 
valued asset in 50% of the deals that I do. No kidding. So, so if I trademark, if I spend a couple thousand dollars to trademark a branded process or a slogan, whatever the case may be, what kind of ROI do I see on the other side? What does that look like? Not to you know, put you two on the spot here, but I'm just no, curious. No, you're not putting me on the spot at all. Let's use a hypothetical. Let's, let's say you have a particular brand that's been around for 30 years. You have a design. You have you know, branded. You do golf outings and you do charitable functions and you have apparel with your design and you're based in Nashville, Tennessee. So your, your brand is very recognizable. It's been around for a while. You mm-hmm. have a, you have a, a very uh, robust client base. You're charitable, you're marketable in the community. There is a, there's a value to that. And of course, at the end of the day, how you provide client services is, is really how you get clients. But there is a recognizable aspect to that brand that a buyer will say, well, we're bringing these clients over but if we want to exp- if we want to be recognizable, we need to purchase all of this intellectual property because this brand is in fact recognizable not only in Nashville but wherever else they have offices. And we want to either establish that the fact that we own this brand now and then grow upon it. So there there is a tangible value to all of that intellectual property. Okay, great. And beyond the brand identity, because I'm I'm constantly reminding advisors, look, you're not a bricks and mortar transactional business, you think for a living, you're promoting the promise of the future, but the value goes beyond just your revenues and EBITDA and AUM and all of that. It gets into these elements that add credibility and points of difference like branding. Does that also apply? Like if I'm built out as a financial professional, I have a proprietary playbook, a procedures manual of all my best practices based on the rule of three, everything we do three or more times that has three or more steps does not reside in someone's head. It's documented in that playbook. Does a buyer look at that and say, wow, okay, that's that's very, very attractive. That's very valuable. Yeah. Sometimes they really do. And there are a lot of really good financial advisors who have that playbook. They try to trademark a phrase or copyright the actual strategy in relation to what they've come up with. And it is nuanced and different from, you know, maybe slightly, but different from somebody else's playbook. But they always try to brand that, hey, we have the right strategy for you. Here it is. There's intrinsic value to that from a buyer. I mean, a buyer doesn't want to leave that outside of what they're getting. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, those financial advisors have grown their book because of that. They've either written a book or come up with a strategy or they've come up with some type of formula from a financial standpoint to diversify your portfolio. Something to that effect has helped them to grow their practice, and there is intrinsic value in that. Well, and oftentimes, it's not even related to the, to the approach to asset management. The playbook's value is powerful because of practice management and relationship management, mm-hmm. how they manage the business, how they manage the client experience, and how they manage their clients' expectations around volatility, future pacing based on long-term planning, all these things that contribute to advocacy. I'm thinking if I'm a buyer and I, you know, I'm acquiring businesses as a, as a scalable financial advisor, I may be able to adopt and deploy some of these in the other aspects of my core business. That's absolutely right. And there, there, is, there is a value to that as well. I mean, when you're a sophisticated buyer, 
you're not just want to go. It's more than just looking at the numbers. Sometimes you can look at the numbers and create a geographic footprint that you want, but it's also a culture thing. You want to take the financial advisors that if you're very into the plan, into the process, you see a lot of big conglomerate financial advisory firms that are buying up shops that are into that process. And they can also buy into your culture in that process. And then you see other shops that are focused on return on investment and numbers and hard facts, as I call them. So you're absolutely right in that there's a lot of value to that. But you also see when these places are being bought, they're being bought by people who are like-minded at the end of the day. Mm, Yeah, true. To position yourself as a subject matter expert while efficiently creating professional contrast in the eyes of your prospective clients, strategic partners, and ideal clients, deploy a podcasting initiative using the turnkey process developed by Proudmouth. Learn more at proudmouth.com. Do you aspire to consistently attract and keep great clients while driving the enterprise value of your business? Do you want to achieve professional contrast by supplementing your technical ability with a consistent client experience driven by best practices? The Blue Square Toolkit brings the proven Pareto Systems philosophy and process to life in a way that tethers your team so that you can competitor-proof your clients, gain their full empowerment, and attract quality referrals, all while restoring liberation and order in your life, and all in an intuitive, easy-to-use turnkey solution. Visit bluesquaretoolkit.com to get your 14-day free trial today. So back to the data room and your checklist and just priming everything. Do you, do you remove some of the hassle factor to, to identify any hair or skeletons or things that are falling through the cracks? Do you just basically point it out and say, get this done? Or do you have mechanisms in place to help me move it and, and take action on it? Yeah. So, so when, when we come in as, a, as an exit planning strategist, so to speak, we provide what I like to call a concierge experience. Like, give us all of your information. We're going to look through it. We're going to give you our recommendations. We're going to take you through the process of how we need to fix this. And if we can fix it on the legal side, then we'll just do it as long as we get confirmation to do it. We'll walk through what the issues are. So we take a very, give us the information and then it's our job to decipher it, to organize it, to let you know what the material red flags are and how to fix them from a legal standpoint. And if you want us to fix them, then we'll fix them on your timeline And at the end of the day, you want to have a data room that is complete, that has very, very few material liability issues in it, that is organized. So a company has that ready and we update it as we continue to counsel them, we update it. And then when they're ready to to potentially find a buyer, you have a complete data room of all the corporate legal documentation that has been thought out on on the legal business side. When I represent a lot of my big RIA firms and they're acquiring smaller shops, we always talk about a concierge experience. This is a big deal for the seller. 
So we're going to take the laboring or in terms of looking at the diligence, drafting the documentation for the acquisition, and we're going to make this as seamless of a process as we can. And I take that same approach when I bring on a new client from an exit planning perspective. That's terrific. Okay, so I'd like to talk for a moment a little bit about what the whole experience is for a buyer. So if I want to buy businesses, would I reach out to you initially in the process? Like, how does that work? Yeah, so usually um, a buyer of any size, and it depends on the size, is going to reach out to me for one of two things. If it's a smaller buyer that has woken up one day and said, hey, it's, it's time for me to get my ducks in a row and think about my growth initiatives. I've grown my book to you know, $100, $200, 300000000 million in assets under management. And how I'm really going to get to the next level is through organic acquisitions. I need somebody who's going to structure my entities in a way that I could start that growth. So a smaller shop is going to reach out to me to make sure that their corporate structure is appropriate for taking on acquisitions. And, we can, and I usually counsel them on that. In terms of actually finding the acquisitions, there are a number of intermediaries that are out there that could help a smaller buyer kind of source acquisitions. Um, you know, FP Transitions is one of them. They do a nice job of finding, you give them parameters, they do a very nice job of going out and, and, and finding buyers for those smaller shops. For my bigger clients, they usually have one of two things in-house. They usually source all of their M&A internally, or uh, what, what, what I'm seeing more and more of is they have a private equity partner or some type of minority partner that really runs their entire mergers and acquisition arm. They go out, they use their capabilities, their expertise to go out and, and source all of the acquisitions that they want to make. Where I come in on that is is usually strictly from a legal standpoint. Is our structure correct? We need you to paper these acquisitions. We need you to serve as our buy-side counsel and create what I just said, the concierge-type service for the sell-side financial advisory firms, wealth management firms that we're acquiring. Interesting. Okay, I'm wondering if you've seen this too. So when we do a gap analysis and a goal-setting consultation with one of our clients, there's sometimes an unintended consequence what, where it reveals where they are between their ambition and contentment. And by that, I mean, you'll take a, we'll, we'll see a, an advisor with 300 clients. We'll do 80-20 on the 300. And then we'll do 80-20 on the 60. Yeah. And the advisor through this exercise says, you know what? I want to have 25 clients. I want to go spend more time in Cabo. I want to hang with my grandkids. I want to do this, that, and the other thing. But I still love what I do. But these 25 clients represent 45% of my business. It doesn't even feel like work. So what do I do with the 275? Yeah. Is that part of your process as well? That is amazing that you just used that hypothetical. I just talked to a client yesterday who's in that exact same position. He's really grown his book. He has a great team. And he said, Ted, I'm making more money than I ever thought I would make. And, you know, I have, I I forget the exact number, but he probably has around there 350, 400 clients. He's like, at the end of the day, I'd love to take some chips off the table, 
have more time to just relax. And I have about 15 or 25 clients that I have such great relationships with that I've made a lot of money for, that we have a great plan in place. And I just like to manage them. That's what I want to do. He's like, I've been doing this. You know, he's in his late thirties. He's seen a lot of success. And he's like, I've been doing this for 15 years and I've been wearing a hundred hats. I'd rather just wear one. How do I do that? And we, we sit down and we organically look at it. And the great thing is financial advisors are like, are like lawyers. They're type A, they're detail oriented. So he had all this mapped out and we kind of went through it. And it's the great thing about my job is it's case by case. It's not stock. It's not boilerplate. Every situation is different. So you got to use your mind to get through it. And, and in this example, he has a great team. He has people who've been with them forever, but he also has a really good young core. And he's like, I want to give these people equity. I want to continue giving them equity. And they can take on more of the responsibilities that I've had over the years, and I can do less. And we kind of came up with a plan that he's going to bat around for a while and see if we want to lay it out to his employees. And if that's the case, he can have a lot more time to sit in a hammock as opposed to an office chair. You know, it's an amazing collateral benefit of that exercise. And this is incredibly fulfilling. When the advisor reaches out to the 25 and says, I've had a eureka moment. You know, I've been doing this for 20 years. I love what I do. In the beginning, I'd work with anybody. And now I'm starting to look down the road at my clients' evolving needs. They're becoming more complex. So I've made the decision. I'm going to grow my business down from 300 clients to 25 so that I can go deeper in to my clients' evolving and complex needs. And I can't wait to share this with you. And of course, the client reaction is, did I make the cut? <laughs> <laughs> or are you, are you breaking up with me? Yeah. And the yeah. advisor goes, oh, no, no, listen. You're one of my favorite clients. It doesn't even feel like work. I mean, I see your number on the call display. I, I drop everything. And uh, and then he, the advisor just lists off the client's qualities. Yeah. And, and through it all, he says, you know, I, I'm going to be all things to some people instead of all things to all people. Mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong, the 275 clients, I've got a phenomenal transition plan for them. They're going to be so well taken care of. In fact, I would argue they're going to be upgraded and their experience will be elevated because, you know, my B or C client is somebody else's A client. Yep. And uh, I really care for these people, but I can't wait. And long story short, that 25, they understand professional scarcity and they start to protect the advisor mm-hmm. and automatically sift out and make the right introduction. They sift out good prospects from the mass of suspects. And it's not surprising that that advisor in 18 months is up to 50 clients, but they look for the most part, just like the 25 in terms of needs and complexity and profitability. So there's an art and science to all of this. And I'm, I'm very, very excited about it because anytime you can harness, you know, the old saying, there's always a bull market somewhere. Anytime you can harness um, the forces of the market with the forces of demography and then have these best practices in place, it's very, very rewarding. 
emotionally and uh, economically. So, Ted, uh, if I'm a buyer or a seller, what's my first step to connect with you? So the first step to connect with me, and, and the, the great thing about my practice is I get probably 35 to 40% of my business through referrals. The best way to connect to me is, is I am on LinkedIn. Uh, you can you know put me in Google. Luckily, I have a very unique last name, so there aren't a lot of Ted Motheralls out there. Um, you could come to my 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 website for Walter Haverfield. Like I said, we're 125 to 150 attorneys. I'm the chair of the business services group. I pride myself on my responsiveness. So you can email me. You can uh, you can send me a LinkedIn message. I would be happy to listen uh, to anyone who may be in a position like this on the buyer the sell side, and at least give them a little institutional knowledge up front so they're moving in the right direction. Yeah, that's terrific. And is there anything um, in terms of content? Because I know you're you're deep into this uh, subject matter. You're a thought leader. Is there any type of content that could be made available that I can consume as a financial advisor, either on the buy or sell side, just to help me move it down the track a little bit further? Yeah, and, and that's a great question. So so what my firm is doing is we're carving out, since we have an expertise in the space, we're carving out a Twitter feed and Instagram, you know, everything with our social media. And we're also carving out a separate web website where we're sending out client alerts and blasts and just daily and or weekly things that you should know when you're in the space. So we're really becoming more specialized, not only with my practice, but with our business services group in order to provide that useful knowledge to all the financial and wealth managers out there. Yeah, that's terrific. Okay. Well, Ted, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Uh, I know you've got some deep insight and resources. So for those listening in, please reach out to Ted at a minimum, connect with him on LinkedIn. And uh, I'd love to have you back, Ted, to talk about some stories, both in terms of um, missteps to avoid and wins to to aspire to. So if you're open to that, let's maybe put that on the schedule in the next little while. Duncan, thanks so much for your time today. I really, really enjoyed it. And I'd be happy to come back whenever you would have me. Yeah, beautiful. Okay, man, you take it easy and go Oilers. Go Oilers. I want an Oilers Hurricane Stanley Cup Finals. That's what I'd like to see. Oh, I think the Hurricanes are in tough. Yeah. Because uh, if they can get past the Rangers, but Tampa is Tampa's just so, so good. So good. Love the coach, love the team. But at a minimum, it could be Oilers Avalanche. That would be good. That in 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 many ways is a cup final in many that, ways. That would be really, really good. Duncan, thanks a lot for your time today. Really appreciate it. Likewise. Thank you for listening to Always On with Duncan McPherson, where our objective is to enable professionals to always be working on their business and on themselves. Want to learn more about Duncan and his team? Visit ParetoSystems.com. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Pareto Systems. 
The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This podcast is powered by Proudmouth, the influence accelerators. If you're like me and want to spend more time educating people and less time selling, Proudmouth helps turn Main Street experts like you into trusted mainstream authorities. They will help amplify your influence over a growing audience of magnetically attracted fans. Visit Proudmouth.com to learn more.